Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Big Think is an online forum for big ideas from the world's most creative thinkers and doers. With the Think Again podcast, we're striking out into uncharted and dangerous territory. We want to see what happens when experts are asked to respond to interview clips on topics they may or may not have any knowledge about. We want to jump into the unknown with no script, no preparation. Each week, our producers tunnel deep into Big Think's archives to find ideas that are innovative, timely, or timelessly thought-provoking, and the clips are a total surprise to my guests and to me. Today, I'm joined by Norman Lear, who created basically all the good stuff on TV for decades, including All in the Family, The Jeffersons, Good Times, and much, much more, and who has just written a wonderful memoir. I'll get to the title in a moment. I wanted to tell you a story before we started, a little story. This was a couple weeks before you were coming in, and not everybody knew your book yet. So we were sitting around in the conference room, and we're like, oh, Norman Lear's coming. This is great. Oh, my God. you know. And somebody brought up, I don't know where this came from, but they're like, is he Jewish? And I said, yeah, Norman Lear, of course he's Jewish. And then, but then I was like, huh, I'm not, let me check. And so I looked, and Norman's book is called Even This I Get to Experience? <laughs> I told this to the... But to that's your inflection. The people. I'm putting the inflection, <laughs> yes, but yes. I think, but it's a fairly Yiddish-sounding Yiddish construction. Well, me. that's because you and I had the same mother. <laughs> but the title of my book is Even This I Get to Experience. My mother would have said exactly the way you <laughs> I thought so. I mean, I heard that. Yeah. My grandmother, Selma, who I spent many, many wonderful hours in conversation, uh, who lived to 96 years old, she would have said it that uh -huh. way. But I wanted to ask you, maybe as an entry point into talking a little bit about your book, about that title uh, and uh -huh. sort of how it relates to the story of your life that you tell in the book, if you want to start there. or No, it's a good place to yeah. start. I'm just awed moment to moment by the wonderful things that are available to anybody who's paying a lot of attention. More available to those of us who can afford that attention because we don't have problems other parts of the culture are going through. You read the book, so you know my father went to prison when I was nine years old, and yeah. I had a, an extremely difficult few years while he was away, and I didn't see much of my mother and my sister, and I was living with an uncle, an uncle, an uncle, and finally my grandparents. I think always about being treated to an understanding of the foolishness of the human condition. The evening my father was taken and was going to be gone for three years, my mother was selling the furniture. She didn't think we could stay in the same house. She was selling my father's red leather chair, which was the chair from which we listened. He was sitting in the chair when we listened to the radio, and he controlled the dial just the way Archie did. And some asshole of a grown-up puts his hand on my shoulder and says, you're the man in the house now. Well, to hear that at that moment was to understand how insane, how funny that was and sad. I wanted to ask a little bit about that, and I, I put that into some of the questions that they were asking you on, on video, because I did read your book, and I, yeah. I, I loved it. It sounds like you dealt with all of that horrible stuff as a kid. What, on the one hand, seems like a really healthy way, and what, on the other hand, is kind of like pushing it to the side and coming at it from a side angle. You know, all these things that made you great in your career, as a human, as a person, do you think that 
they also did you harm as a kid? Like, or is that the way you just I had to my, do it? My like, thinking overall, I don't rake through the past that okay. way. My thinking overall is if I'm in good shape now and it took all this shit to get me here, <laughs> then the shit would, it had to be because I'm in good shape now and it's the now I care about. You did what you had to do. It sounds like, okay. So here's how this show works. Just to reiterate, yeah. um, we're gonna watch three different clips that are surprise clips chosen by our producers. Uh, I haven't seen them, I don't know what they are, and we're gonna go where we go with the conversation. I have to take your word for that, huh? It's absolutely true. You, you got my word of honor, I'm not a liar. I'm looking at his face, he's telling the truth. I'm telling the truth. Yeah. So, the first one is Ron Garan, who's an astronaut, that I know. Uh, I'm looking at it, and it's called To the Moon or Mars. Should we go to, to the moon or should we go to Mars? We should go to both. But I guess the real question is, where do we go next? What's the next step? You know, let's look 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the road and see what effects our decisions that we make today will take us, you know, what trajectory will that put us on? Where will that get us in that time frame? And so if we go to Mars first, which we can do, I, I'd say it would probably be 10 to 15 years from the time we make a decision to go to Mars, we could probably get to Mars. And, but by making a decision, that means we've allocated the necessary funding, et cetera, et cetera. But another path to Mars would be to go to the moon first. And by going to the moon first, and, um, and what I mean by that is by establishing a transportation infrastructure between the Earth and the moon and a permanent human presence on the moon, by doing that, that would open up the, whole, the entire solar system. So to me, from a long-term point of view, it makes sense to have the next step being to return to the moon, this time to stay. It's a little crazy that we're focusing on things like colonizing the moon and Mars. If we have the technology to make those things possible, why don't we fix the Earth? I don't know, what do you think? What do you well, think that about was, that was going through my mind too. He didn't look Jewish, but I heard his Jewish mother in my head <laughs> saying, there's so much to do here, why would you go there? If I could do the accents, I would do it <laughs> Italian, Spanish, Egyptian, you know, because I think it's universal. You know, nothing stops the uh, ingenuity part of us that makes some people against all odds continue to do what they did. Elon Musk yes. Yes, I was likely had relatives who were saying, what are you <laughs> doing? A car? You're going to make a car? <laughs> Henry Ford made a car <laughs> in another era. Anyway, but nothing stops us. Elon Musk is a good example, actually, because, you know, he also runs SpaceX, right? Yes. So he yes. got impatient with NASA and was like, come on, guys, we need to do something ambitious. And he often makes the point that we need that soaring sense of ambition, like that that's good for us as a species to see that we're capable of like going out into the universe. I mean, I didn't live through the moon landing. That was a couple of years before my birth, but that must have been an extraordinary moment. It was. What was and that like I, and for I remember, you? Like I remember that? as a kid uh, running around in the streets when, the, when a rare plane was in the sky. Flying had not been around that long. You know, I remember the Iceman before the refrigerator. Somebody had to have refrigeration. Right. <laughs> and thank God for that. So I say, it, it, you know, on the subject of going to the moon as a way stop to get to Mars and elsewhere, I wouldn't spend any time wondering if it's going to happen or uh, should it happen. It's going to happen. 
you know, the first journeys to Mars that are going to be possible for humans, which are maybe 30 years away at the rate SpaceX is setting, they're going to take a while, and those people are probably not coming back. So it's going to self-select for an interesting group of people who have nothing to lose, right? A little bit like the first people who came to America. The well, I love thinking of it that way. That's, uh, that's a good way to think of it. Nothing was going to stop them, and nothing's going to stop those going to Mars. That's right. It's sort of this timeless spirit of adventure. Um, and I guess and those people who are struggling to get into Sweden and Denmark and Europe generally now, the migrants who are dying, literally, wouldn't they be ready to get to go to the moon? Indeed, yeah. No, there are plenty of people on this planet who, who would do anything for better conditions. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, it's a combination of necessity, but also some mm. kind of bravery and spirit of adventure in humans. These two things go together. Like, there's the need, but then there's also the hope. And I think, you know, to tie this back to your book a little bit before we move on maybe to the next conversation, your story strikes me as a very hopeful one. It seems to me like you were always extremely inventive in trying to find a better, a better mm -hmm. way. I just, I didn't want to be uh, my dad. I love the, the expression, count on me. If my dad said count on me, it was a laugh line because he couldn't be counted on. I say that with deep sadness. And I wanted to be counted on. And you have to move in your own direction and not be put off in order to be counted on. What do you think about father-son relationships? I gotta say that most of the movies and TV shows and, I don't know, moments in literature that really kill me, like where I actually cry, which is rare, are about father-son relationships. I feel like so much of, maybe for men generally, but that you can understand so much through those relationships. Well, I, I have five daughters, one son. I never turn my phone off. I was giving my eulogy at a memorial for my sister who passed, and my phone rang. Mm -hmm. And uh, they laughed a little, and I picked it up. The whole crowd knew that my sister was a pain in the ass where the telephone was concerned. She never let you, you know, get <laughs> rid of her. I said, Claire? That's my sister. What are you doing? Where did you find a phone up there? What you... <laughs> and it was, uh, it was great. My six kids know that they will reach me every time they try. And I love that, whatever the hell I'm doing. It's interesting. I mean, you went that way with it, right? Other sons might have been crushed by that. Like, you, uh -huh. you, you decided to become a different man and somehow managed to do that. All right. Shall we, are we ready for the next conversation? I'm here to serve. All right, <laughs> excellent. Whither thou goest. All right, I shall lead on to the next surprise clip. Let's see whither we go. Oh dear, Donald Trump. <laughs> I remember him. It's common in, in, in public discussions, notably those fueled by figures such as Donald Trump, to mischaracterize immigrants and say things like, well, they should have waited their turn in line. But one of the ordeals immigrants, undocumented and documented, face is that there is no one line. Those who are in support of Donald Trump, who have lent their support to Donald Trump for now, I would say that the very first thing they need to do is to speak to some undocumented immigrants. But there are other reasons why it's important to push back against Trump. 
One has to do with the long, long history of xenophobia in the United States, a xenophobia that has touched many of the ancestors of those people who currently support Trump. It is easy when one settles into life in the United States and one has children and grandchildren who are pursuing the American dream to efface or begin blurring out the traumas of the immigration experience. Because everyone wants to be American and that means, well, you sort of forget what your grandparents or great-grandparents went through. But I would encourage them to do some archival research in their own families, to begin asking around. Things were pretty grim in part because of nativist and xenophobic sentiment. And it's in this way, by thinking both to our collective past as a nation and thinking about our past as an immigrant nation, that we can begin to push back against some of Trump's more noxious statements. First of all, I don't think the American people deserve to be weighted down with the establishments, how they've accepted Trump. I think the American people had a good opportunity with Donald Trump to raise him up by way of giving the others and the establishment the finger. I see Donald Trump as the middle finger of the right hand. I think the early Donald Trump was altogether authentic. A horse's ass, but an authentic horse's <laughs> And that was refreshing. And it was a way of saying, screw you. And I think he's falling to pieces slowly now and will continue to. Let's talk a little bit about this immigration crisis that's going on right now. Do you think all the country, nations of Europe should fling their doors open? I would assume your sympathies lie with the fleeing refugees. My sympathies do indeed lie in that direction. We have to understand who we are as human beings, and I don't see leadership helping us. I see a lot of self-interest. I don't see any centralized leadership, nor do I think that the powers of Europe on the whole would accept that centralized leadership if it were coming mm -hmm. from, say, Germany. But also, I'm not hearing those voices. I'm hearing some, like, okay, let's come up with a formula, but I'm not hearing brave, right. human-centered leadership. I, I think, I mean, there's no time for this, but yet I think it must happen at some point where we reach a general agreement about who we are as human beings. I mean, the fact of my life as a human being, I can go to sleep knowing there are hundreds of thousands of kids with flies in their eyes, and, and maybe even before I fall asleep, I get down to the refrigerator and have a late night snack. I am born with the capacity to choose to be that ignorant or that indifferent to that kind of suffering. You know, and I'm born with the same capacity for doing violence that anybody else on this globe has got, you know. I flew uh, during World War II. I was in a B-17 bomber. I was the guy, the radio operator, who let the pilot know when the last bomb had cleared the bomb bays before so they could close the door. I used to look down and see our bombs dropping and then meeting with the thousands of, or hundreds of other bombs from the other planes all around us. And I would think, well, they're not all gonna hit the target. And I, was, and I would think, I don't care. I don't care. And then sometime later, I wondered if anybody came to me with a piece of paper and a pen and said, sign this, that you never would care if it hit a farmhouse and a family. I don't think I could sign that. But I haven't been tested. 
And what I'm talking about, I'm talking about only because we have to come to understand that we are capable, if we're taught, to hate. I was carefully taught by Hitler and what I knew was happening with Jews and others, and I had sufficient hate to feel that way at the moment. But I want to believe desperately that I would not, at another moment, agree to be that person. But that's the understanding we have to reach to make that story I was telling a little clearer because everybody wasn't in a B-17 bomb. <laughs> I have six kids. If somebody harmed, seriously harmed one of my kids, I'll drive for two days and kill the son of a bitch in front of his family. That's how much I can, I can hate. Now, I don't want to be the person who would do that, but that's how I'm built. I mean, I have the capacity sure. to hate that much. We have to know this about ourselves and think about it and talk about it. I mean, the hardest thing of all, the hardest idea to get one's head around is the idea that it might not be desirable under that circumstance to go drive for two days and kill the son mm -hmm. of a bitch. Well, That's I, hard. I, I think there's no question in my mind when I've had the opportunity to ju seriously judge it. Is to not kill. It's yeah. Is to not kill, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Not take another life. Yeah. Okay, I think we're ready for the third one, and uh, third and, uh, and final clip. Let us see what lies in store for us. A few years ago, a study was released by the World Gallup Poll that actually looked at what they called the stress index of 121 countries, where they went around the world and they asked people, did you experience a great deal of stress yesterday? And they had expected, the researchers expected, that having a country of people who were stressed out, that that would be related to you know, less happiness with life, less satisfaction with life, worse health, shorter life expectancy. What they found instead is that if you have a nation of people who say yesterday was really stressful, you have a nation of people who also are happier, they're more satisfied with their lives, they also tend to live longer. And one of the reasons seems to be that the things that create stress in our lives are also the things that create meaning. And a more recent study done here in the United States found that if you want to know whether or not someone has a meaningful life, the best way to find out is to ask them about the stress in their lives. That people who say their lives are more meaningful, they tend to have experienced more stress in their past, they spend more time thinking about the difficulties they've overcome, and they also spend more time worrying about the future. And it again seems to be because the things in our lives, the relationships, the roles, the difficult goals that we're pursuing, the things that create meaning also inevitably create stress. This book that she had written emerged out of the industry of positive psych, and she's saying something that is counterintuitive and therefore catches our attention. But I wonder what your thoughts are on like adversity and how well, it shapes I, I a person. Wrote about that directly in the book. When we had a number of shows on the air and I was rushing from one meeting to the next, I would hear all the time, how do you handle the stress? I would say, well, there is stress and then there is joyful stress. So there's stress getting the show mounted and on its feet, but then there's all the joyful stress in the production of the shows where 240 live people are reacting to it. When an audience belly laughs, they have a tendency to come out of their chairs and go <laughs> forward and come back. It's like a wave of joy. 
if you attach only the terror of the job, if that's all you're dealing with, then you're facing one kind of stress. If you're facing that kind of stress, but it concludes with joyful stress, it's the joyful that remains. So I think of laughter as having added time to my life. Do you think that's a matter of personality? I mean, you've worked with a lot of people on shows, and you know there are some people who are just totally miserable the whole oh, time, right? Yeah, maybe perhaps more than <laughs> not. <laughs> right. Uh, it's funny in my business because God knows they laughed as much as I did, but perhaps not as deeply. I used to think I was laughing in places in my body I didn't know existed. <laughs> But I'm, I, I'm sure I, I've seen guys go into deep despair. It's, it's amazing to think of somebody who's super depressed and, uh, and funny as hell. There was something in your book, you were talking about Bert Lahr and you were talking about clowns yeah. generally. That was really interesting to me. That's not a common usage that pop culture today would be familiar with, the idea of a clown as not the guy with the red nose, but the comic actor who's able to do that thing Bert Lahr could do. And for the audience, I know Bert Lahr as the lion in The Wizard of Oz. He, right. he, was, he did many, many movies. What is that about, that razor's edge between comedy and sadness that the clowns can walk? You know, we've got dozens or hundreds of comics in the course of a half century, let's say. But in the same half century, there can be one or two clowns. The clown is the rarest. You know, first of all, people don't want to hear about sadness. That's probably why, even if it's true, somebody might say, oh, what do you mean? He's funny, you know? But maybe what's happening there is that the person is so open they are kind of a conduit for that kind of compassion for kind of how the human situation, mm -hmm. which is overall both very funny and very tragic, and that somehow that is like alive and present well, in that's, them. That's, that's a very good explanation of the clown. The clown needn't be aware of it mentally himself, but he represents both the joy and the trouble. Because I think it's hard, if I learned anything writing the book, it was that it's hard to be a human being. I don't care what the circumstances of one's birth. If there is nothing in life that makes trouble or mischief, we'll make it up. We'll bring it to ourselves. It's a hard game. But the kick is in knowing that and, and beating the odds. On that note, I'm going to wind up. Norman Lear, it has been wonderful having you on Think Again. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. Please join us next week when I talk with novelist and short story writer Juno Diaz. See you then.